This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. In today's episode, we're going to hear from three of the authors behind the recent Heredity paper, Genetics of Randomly Bred Cats Support the Cradle of Cat Domestication Being in the Near East. It's a fascinating study into one of humanity's oldest companions. Welcome all to the podcast. First of all, can you please just introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Leslie Lyons. I'm a professor at the Department of Veterinary Medicine and uh, Surgery in the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Missouri, and I am a feline geneticist. Jared Decker, I'm at the University of Missouri in the Department of Animal Sciences, and I'm an associate professor and the WARDAC chair in animal genomics. And I'm Sarah Nilsson. I'm at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I'm currently a postdoc working on population and quantitative genetics. Welcome all to the podcast. This paper is essentially about cat domestication. So just to start us off, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the history of cat-human relations. Yeah, cat-human relations have uh, really uh, initiated once we transition from hunter-gatherers to farmers. Um, so as we settled down, as humans settled down and began civilizations, uh, we also developed large refuse piles and large granaries. And that's when the prey for cats really started to come in and really expand, such as the domestic mouse or the mouse mouse. And so if the prey's there, you have to remember that every animal, even humans, our job is to procure energy so that we can propagate our species and to do it with the least expenditure of energy. And so if a wildcat that would have been living in the territory of human civilization, so uh, an African wildcat in the Near East, then the cats that adapted and realized if I can tolerate humans, then I can get more meals with less expenditure of energy. They also will help with protection and warmth. And uh, so it's a pretty good gig, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship. And so we kind of feel it kind of went both ways. Humans tolerated cats because they did a good thing for them, uh, vermin control, and cats tolerated humans because we did a good thing for them and that was providing protection and good food sources. All this would have started about 10,000 years ago. We can pinpoint it to when farming really established where farming established, and also in geological time as well, because the last glacial maximum is receding. And so as the glaciers recede, we now have an area that's very good for farming, and that's the Near East. And so it, it's a very nice pinpointed time, both with cat domestication and most agricultural species as well. 
Domestication is one of the great advances in human history because it allowed us to utilize wild plants and wild animals to help our societies be more successful. And so the cat is an interesting case in the domestication of animals because as Leslie was describing, it really provided this need to remove vermin from agricultural stores. But then as, you know, domestication is not an event, but a process. And so has the domestication of cat has proceeded over time, what we've really seen develop is that cats also become a companion to their humans and are loved for uh, their cuteness and and their beauty and and their personality. I don't know how much more I can add, but cats really did... I learned to tolerate humans to the point of now where we joke that humans are serving cats in their interests and cats are our great overlords because, you know, we have adopted them into our lives so much. It's just a continual process of back and forth relationships between humans and cats. So that domestication process is still kind of continuing in that sense. I kind of know exactly what you mean, because one of the reasons that this paper really caught my eye is that I have a cat, and unfortunately he has been important for vermin control in my own home. And I wonder what it is about this area of research that really fascinates you. So why is this study something that you're all passionate about? Well, the reason for embarking on this task has been actually to help both human health and feline health. So I'm quite pleased if I help all the felines of the world with their health care. But of course, we do one health, precision health, genomic medicine, precision medicine. And so whatever we do in a cat will actually pertain to humans as well, as far as trying to help understand their health and our physiology and how genes work. Well, in order to do that, we've had to develop good genetic tools. And one of the tools that we needed to develop was a good sequence database. And in order to do that, we needed to know if you have to have a database that represents everybody, we needed to embark on a study of how diverse are cats. Are cats of Southeast Asia the same as cats in Western Europe? Are they the same as in the Americas? And so we really embarked on this project, not only for let's We can also study domestication of the cat, but it'll help us develop genomic tools as well. And so by doing this study, it's been quite fascinating to find out that cats look like they got domesticated in one place where most other species have had several domestication sites and that cats have really spread from the Near East and spread out all over the world by being transferred with humans. And so these population dynamics are important for us to understand so that we can develop strong genetic tools, which help us develop strong health resources for cats and people. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a, on a farm with livestock. And so the genetics of domesticated animals has been interest and a passion of mine ever since childhood. But one of the things that really got me interested in this project and in cats is how can we better understand the where of domestication and using evolutionary biology to better understand these domesticated species? And then what in turn happens is as we better understand 
the history of these domesticated species, we obviously learn more about the history of humans as well. For me, also from growing up with livestock and family members who are veterinarians, I was always interested in being involved with animals in a certain aspect. And this project really captured my interest because I have an interest in conservation genetics and understanding the history of populations. So for me, I really enjoyed going through this because, you know, through grade school, history was my least favorite subject. It was memorization of dates and names. And so, but from this project, Leslie really helped emphasize the importance of knowing human history. So going through this, it was learning, you know, how cats have related to humans and how they have spread throughout the world. All of these historical events have now shaped what cats are today. So for me, it was definitely kind of following that trail and that question of untangling the history of cats. Hmm, fantastic. What you were just describing there kind of shows the real breadth of areas that this study actually touches upon. So what was it in this study that you were actually looking at? What were your specific aims? One of the first things we wanted to discover was just, are there different populations of cats that are genetically distinct? And uh, with an earlier study that we had published, we had found that cats from Southeast Asia were quite different from cats of Western Europe, which were also quite different from cats of the Mediterranean and, and the Near East. So my team then embarked on filling in all the samples, finding DNA samples from cats from all over the Near and Middle East from pretty much Europe all the way to Southeast Asia so that we could actually have a nice little continuum of samples to see where is it that cats change? Was there a different domestication site in Asia as compared to the Near East or in Western Europe? So you couldn't answer those just by having cats on the periphery. You had to fill in all the cats in the middle. And so we spent years doing that, acquiring cat samples, and then having different types of genetic markers, both kind of fast evolving ones and ones that evolve at a bit of a slower pace to help us tell the story. Do we think cats were domesticated more than once? And do we think we have very distinct cat populations that we would need to consider when we develop our genomic resources and do our healthcare studies? This project has really been a labor of love on Leslie's part. And like she mentioned, she's spent decades collecting these DNA samples. And so I think one of the really valuable resources of this study is just the breadth of geographic locations that these samples came from. One of the other important pieces of how this data was collected is the data was not collected from breed cats. So these are cats that have been selected to fit a specific breed criteria. Rather, this is what we term random bred cats. So these are the cats that may be living on the street. They're living with humans, but not necessarily uh, 100% controlled by humans. And what that does is that removes a layer 
of selection that's been put on breed cats and puts us a step closer back into time of what the genetics of the earliest domesticated cats would have looked like. And so like Leslie was describing, we're really trying to understand how many groups of cats are there? How many populations of cats are there? And where are the centers with the highest level of genetic diversity? And where are the centers that have the ancestry closest to the wild progenitors of cats? One of the other steps that we took in this analysis as we tried to better understand the data is we tried to remove any cats that had evidence for mixture between different geographic locations. Again, just trying to peel another layer off and get the data closer to the patterns that would have existed at the time of domestication. I mean, it is a really incredible collection of samples that you collected. Um, and I know you've kind of touched upon a few elements of it, but I'm really curious as to what it is that you actually did with these samples once you'd collected them in order to try and find these centers or the center of domestication. Well, for the project, uh, we we did our best that we want to try to represent cats of the region in a fair way, as unbiased as possible. So we we did our best to make sure that cats were as unrelated as possible. Now, these are feral cats, random bred cats, so they might be related in a way that we don't know, but we tried not to pick a whole litter of kittens, per se, or cats all from just one area or one part of town, right? And we also tried to keep the numbers up around, oh, somewhere around 20 cats or so to represent the effective breeding population of the cats. We tried to balance males and females as well, but we tried not to select them in any manner from what they look like. So just really just cats that represented the area. And then again, we collected them from all various sites, different ways. Some were spay and neuter clinics. Some cats were collected, for example, from Iraq, cats that had wandered onto the army bases at the time and were getting checked for rabies and other infectious diseases. So those samples got sent for a whole different reason. Uh, Sometimes I was there with buckle swabs actually collecting the cat samples. And so we wanted to make sure that we got areas where agricultural development occurred. So the Indus Valley of Pakistan, the Yellow River region of China, and then, of course, the whole Fertile Crescent. We really covered the Fertile Crescent quite well. Then from there, we wanted to do fast-moving, quickly evolving markers STRs, microsatellite markers, and we made sure these are all overlapping with previous studies as well. So they're a nice data set because it completely overlaps with previous work. And then also we added in the SNP markers as well, and those are tried to be unlinked markers that had no selection on them to our knowledge at the time. And then Jared and team took over with the data analyses. Yeah, so Sarah, why don't you take the first step at describing the computer analyses. Sounds good. So when Leslie handed off the data to me, the first kind of step was how do we control for all of these samples? 
being all over this huge geographical region. So the first kind of analysis that we looked at was a principal component analysis, which shows kind of the relationship between animals' genetics. And um, from this, we were able to see that there was really one large cluster of cats that looked you know, kind of like a triangle. And this really related back to geography. And from this, we saw that cats from the Americas and Europe tended to group more closely together. And then cats from the Near East and Africa were a little bit more central. And then we had you know, further along are cats from the Near East. And then kind of the other point to that triangle was cats from Asia. So we tended to see these clines formed based on geographical distance, but there were no really clear, distinct clusters. So going from there, we saw that cats were nearly kind of a panmictic population, that they were one group that started to show a little bit of differentiation based on geographical separation. So their next step that we went was to get kind of a finer, closer, detailed look at those individual populations. So this was our structure analysis that we went and said, for every animal, can we assign a proportion of their genetics to a certain ancestral population? From this, we had some statistics that like helped us choose how many ancestral populations there most likely would be. We came back and we actually had that there was going to be one ancestral population for these cats, which was great because it kind of supported our previous analysis in that these cats are nearly panmictic. You know, there could be just one large population. But we also saw evidence for there possibly being two ancestral populations. And when we plotted this out, we saw that this was very much a east and west distribution of those cats, which was something that had been seen in the previous work done by Leslie's group. So again, kind of that distinction by geographical distribution. And as we increased the number of possible ancestral populations, um, we started getting a little bit more genetic distinction popping out. So going from there, we really wanted to formally test, do we see genetic isolation due to distance of geographic? And this was getting something that Jared had mentioned earlier, that we really wanted to make sure that we removed any possible admixture between these populations so we could get a clear picture of history. So we tested to see if a population, like population C, if it was admixed between population A and B, and if those populations came back as admixed, we went ahead and temporarily removed them because we wanted to capture that ancient historical picture of the genetics of cats and not mostly the most recent migration of cats. So once we had that clear data set, we went ahead and tested for isolation by distance, and we did find in at least the continuous area of Europe, Africa, Asia, that there is isolation by distance, which would make sense because humans are 
moving these cats and cats are not by themselves going to move all the way back from Europe to the Near East on their own. So we see a lot of difference between cats in the Near East in that Fertile Crescent region from cats that are in Europe. And the further away they are, the more distinct they get. So then kind of our next step was, so we have this isolation due to distance. How can we tie it to diversity? Because theoretically in domestication, the closer you are to a center of domestication, the higher diversity you have. And the further away, your diversity lowers. So we went ahead and looked at this diversity of our markers. And we saw that cat populations that were more geographically located closer to where that ancestral species originated in the Near East, they had a higher genetic diversity. And as you moved further away, that tended to decrease. We did see some interesting cases of populations further away that had a higher genetic diversity, but that's really where knowing the human history tied in. So populations of cats that existed along trade routes or in certain port cities tended to have a little bit more higher genetic diversity, which could be explained because cats are being brought in for trade. Some of them may get loose. As we know, cats like to be outside. (laughs) And then they start their own population in that area. So we were able to, from that, when we actually plotted it all out on a map, see that the center of high genetic diversity overlapped with this kind of coastal region of the Mediterranean basin on the edge of the Fertile Crescent. And that aligned with that isolation by distance. The closer they were to that area, the less distinct the populations were. So that is kind of the overview of the analyses that we went through. I'm sure Jared can probably fill in a few more details I missed. Yeah, I'll just say, so basically the analyses that we did is we used principal component analyses to look at major sources of variation in genetic similarity. We also looked for major factors of ancestry using software called Structure and Fast Structure. We uh, used F3 statistics to look for admixed animals, and then we uh, formally tested for relationships between genetics and geographical distance using isolation by distance. And then we looked at patterns of diversity and genetic similarity to the ancestral African wildcats to better understand the patterns of diversity in these random bred cats. Yeah, it's it's a very cool set of analyses, and it's really interesting hearing some of the thinking process about how you develop them. And I know you kind of covered some of the results that you were finding, but I guess just to kind of like pull them out and summarize them, what were the key findings of the study? Well, key findings of the study were cats are different from most any other species, as always. <laughs> so they look like they have one major domestication event, and that is in the Near East, and which supports previous studies that have made similar references. Unlike other species, cats are one big panmictic population that 
They're not really genetically distinct, except when we get to the periphery of where they're migration events. Uh, so they can go as far as Southeast Asia, and those cats are genetically different from the cats in Scotland and the UK, but primarily because of just genetic distance not because of land barriers and sea barriers and mountain ranges, but just because of isolation by distance. So those are our two key major discoveries from the project. And, you know, we have to remember that they're also different that the progenitor still exists, the African wildcat. And now we have a lot of interplay and integration with the European wildcat, which we think is one step farther removed. And now we know our domesticated cats can also interbreed with those as well. So we have constant gene flow, which probably contributes to the high genetic diversity of cats. Mm, fascinating. What were the parallels with other domesticated species? Jared can maybe elaborate on that as well with what he's found with cattle. Yeah, so one of the really interesting things to me is many of the patterns that we saw in the population histories, the breed histories of domesticated cattle, we saw very striking parallels in terms of admixture events and those type of things in the random bred cats as well. So it was very interesting to me that these two domesticated species that we use for very different purposes, in many cases, had reflections of each other in terms of their genetic diversity. And so for me, that really drove home the fact that the history of humans is really written in the DNA of these domesticated animals. Perfect. And I guess one of the last things I really have to ask is what you think the sort of big take-home message in this paper is. For the genetic resources, which was an important aspect of why we did this project in the beginning, we do realize that cats are extremely genetically diverse. They random bred cats, which represent nearly 99% of the cats in the world. We, we talk about breeds and breeds are popular, but for cats, that's a very small portion of the population where it's much bigger for dogs and, and other species, our agricultural species are generally made up of various different breeds. But cats, that's a different story. So they're very genetically diverse. They have very low linkage disequilibrium. And so doing health studies in cats means that we need to have very powerful and in-depth data systems, databases, in order to be able to analyze their genomes and to make healthcare discoveries. And then secondly, we need to make sure that we include cats from Asia in our projects to make sure that we're developing genetic resources that are powerful for all cats around the world. And this study really helped us put the data to, yes, we need to do that. And let's be very vigilant with developing our genetic resources. Like any evolutionary process, domestication is very complex. And so one of the things that really stood out to me is the complexity of cat domestication and all of the various things that have happened. And so I really look forward to future studies where we have more density of DNA markers and can really dig in deeper to the complex process of domestication in cats. For me, is more of the spread and depth of sampling 
really needs to be an emphasis in genetic studies moving forward. You know, because Leslie and her team did such a great job of making sure that we didn't have those peripheries only. And because we did have widespread sampling of many cats covering, you know, the entire region and the entire continents almost, that is how we are actually able to characterize the genetic relationships of these cats. So to me, it really emphasized that your sampling needs to be almost too much (laughs) if we can ever reach that point. And that for kind of the fun side is that cats, you know, domestication, we have more and more evidence that it did happen in the Near East, coinciding with that human stationary agriculture. And then from there, Humans have just allowed cats to slowly dominate the world. So, you know, we've brought them home with us. They're a part of our lives. And, you know, they're just one step closer to taking over. (laughs) Very much so. One has already taken over my home. Um, But yeah, I think you're right. The, The sampling in this study is really incredible. And I think it is one of the real strengths of this paper. And hopefully people will now go and give it a read. So just to finish up, I wonder if you could remind us what your paper is called and also just tell us about anyone else who needs a mention in bringing us this work. Our official title ended up being Genetics of Randomly Bred Cats Support the Cradle of Cat Domestication Being in the Near East. Then people to thank, well, you know, I personally thank Sarah for staying in there. This helped her to get her PhD and uh, the great work by Animal Sciences and Jared Decker with uh, sticking out with us for a long, long process. But, you know, there's people from all over the world that helped collect these samples. And, and some of them were plant geneticists that went and helped us collect samples. And then veterinarians uh, like the cats from Oman. What a, what a great place to have cats from Oman. That was just a private vet clinic. And I was in India and went and swabbed cats from what they call the Blue Cross there, which is similar to, you know, like Cats Protection or something in the UK. And there's just a a whole list of people in the acknowledgments. And that's why the authors are kind of long as well. That really helped. And and we got cats from very weird places from from Abu Simbel in, in Egypt and Asut in Egypt with uh, Nashua Wali there. So it's it's really great that investigators from all over the world help to participate with this project. Yeah. And I think Leslie needs more recognition than she may let on for herself because to me, at least she was the major driving factor in looking at this question and saying, can we answer this question and organizing the entire effort for all of these people around the world and pushing us to continue to get to this answer. And we, we had nice funding as well. So National Geographic funded us at one point. Companies came through and supported us. Illumina provided some of the data for us. Every Cat Foundation, which was formerly the Wind Feline Foundation, UC Davis, University of Missouri, have all contributed to helping us do these analyses and support the people and, and the data collection. Amazing. Well, it's a fantastic paper and it's been a real joy talking to you all. Uh, So thank you very much for joining me and explaining all about this really excellent project. Yeah. Yeah, Don't forget, cats rule. (laughs) (laughs) I I won't say the rest.
You can find the paper discussed today on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 